Morning. So we're looking this morning at Genesis 6. And I better turn the microphone on. Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. We're looking at a passage that's caused almost as much speculation and conjecture as the rest of Genesis itself. Thanks, John. If you don't know where Genesis is, it's just after maps. It's just after index. Right. Quite a, uh, quite a significant passage, as I said. It's mentioned 13 times in nine other books in the Bible, which by the law of much mention means that it's quite significant. Now, if you've read this before, particularly the first couple of chapters, you'll notice that it's quite stop-start. It tells you what it's going to tell you, and then when it's finished doing that, it tells you what it's just told you. So we're going to have a look. I'm going to take it piece by piece, and then we're going to have a look and see what it's actually trying to tell us. So let's start at chapter 6, and we'll read the first eight verses. When men men began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air for I am grieved that I have made them but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord so it starts off with a phrase there when men begin to increase on the earth now As we've been going through this, you will have noticed that ages were pretty high in those days. On average, people lived about eight to nine hundred years. So obviously that meant the population was expanding. Why were people living so long in those days? There's a lot of theories, there's a lot of conjecture about them. Amongst them, well, you have to remember this is just after creation. It was a perfect earth. There were few, if any, genetic diseases. In fact, there were probably very few diseases at all. And from what we understand, the process of aging took a lot longer than it does now. Also, if you believe the canopy theory, the canopy theory says that the atmosphere of the earth was very different to today. There was a lot more moisture in the earth and there was a lot more oxygen, meaning that earth was a very nice place to live in those days. But then we get to verse 3. But the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. 
His days will be 120 years. Truth is, we don't know exactly what that phrase actually means. It's notoriously difficult to translate, as anybody who's ever looked into this will know. That word contend means to rule or to judge like a magistrate. Most of the commentators have said that, yes, God gave man a chance to come back to him. He gave them every opportunity, but they wouldn't. And so he allowed them to go totally their own way. And the result was total corruption. When I was researching this, six of the commentaries say, when God says man's days will be 120 years, he wasn't talking about individual man, he was talking about mankind. In other words, mankind had 120 years left. The clock was ticking. And the very next verse goes straight into an aside. The Nephilim. Let's get them out of the way. Let's deal with them first before we carry on. So the Nephilim apparently are a product of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, it's a well-known fact that many people believe that the sons of God refer to angels. Daughters of men are obviously his daughters of men. And so we have the Nephilim, who's a sort of a, a demigod, if you want the Greek phrase. But a clue to who they actually are can be found by scratching the surface and looking at what the name is. In fact, it's less of a name and more of a description. See, the direct translation of Nephilim means the fallen. So the Nephilim are the fallen ones. It can also mean somebody who is big. It can be translated a giant. It can also be translated as somebody who has a big reputation. Some of the very early translations call them bullies or tyrants. Either way you translate it, it says they were men of renown. But we have a problem here because it says that they were also around after the flood. In fact, in Numbers 13, we have the account of the spies going out into the promised land. When they came back, they said to the people, we saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked about the same to them. They must have been quite impressive people. But we know that there were only eight people saved on the ark. So those Nephilim cannot be the same as these Nephilim. Who are they? In Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus says that at the resurrection, people will be like the angels neither marrying nor giving in marriage. So it's unlikely that these Nephilim were fathered by angels. In fact, as most pre-20th century commentators point out, how can a spirit father a child with a flesh and blood woman? We do have a possible explanation, though. 
the sons of God could re- refer to the line of Seth. As John pointed out last week, it was in chapter 4, verse 26. It says, In the time of Seth, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The commentators Barnes, Gill, no, that's John Gill, not our Gill, Jameson, Fawcett and Brown, Keel and Dilich, and Wiersbe all support the view the sons of God mean the descendants of Seth who kept to God's ways and God's path. Those who didn't were no longer referred to as God's children. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses talking about the people of God at that point says they have acted corruptly towards God. To their shame they are no longer his children but they are a warped and crooked generation. So we can see that those who don't follow God are no longer classed as God's people. However, Moses also explains in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy as long as people walk in God's paths they are his people so perhaps that's who the Nephilim were now of all of the commentators that I've looked at I think Warren Wiersbe sums it up the best I'm just going to read a short passage from what he says here On the passage on Genesis chapter 6, he writes, One of Satan's most successful devices is compromise. If he can delude God's people into abandoning their privileged positions of separation from sin and communion with God, then he can corrupt them and lead them into sin. He did this to Israel in the land of Moab, and also after they had conquered the land of Canaan. The prophets warned the Jewish people not to compromise with the idolatrous worship of the pagans around them, but their warnings weren't heeded. The nations experienced a shameful defeat at the hands of their enemies. So what was Satan's plan for defeating God's people in Noah's day? To entice the godly line of Seth, the sons of God, to mix with the ungodly line of Cain, the daughters of men and thus abandon their devotion to the Lord. It was the same temptation that Christians face today. Be friendly with the world. Love the world. Conform to the world. Rather than be separated from the world. Of course, conforming to the world could lead to being condemned with the world. And he goes on. So, compromise was the issue. The inhabitants, you have to understand, didn't see anything wrong. They didn't see anything different to how the way, how or the way things think had always been. They didn't see that anything was going to change. Jesus commented in Matthew 24, 
Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and the leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until those things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, right up to the day that Noah entered the ark. So for 120 years, Noah had warned the people. They ignored his warnings. So Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's a serious commentary on Noah's time. More serious indictment is the charge that because of this, God was grieved that he had made man. His heart was filled with pain. Not really surprising, is it? God had made man in his own image. Mankind went their own way. They rebelled against his plan. They rebelled against his rule. They treated him with indifference. They weren't anti-God. Please understand this. They were just more interested in living their own lives. For this reason, God decided to wipe out what he had made. But Noah, a righteous man, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was righteous and blameless and walked with God, it says in verse 13. What a contrast to those around him. He was blameless. He was righteous and he walked with God. But verse 11, if we go down there, Verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is full of violence. Okay, and going back to verse 8, I am grieved that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want to pick up on that site there, that phrase, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The writer of Genesis is very careful to point out this is not a relative word. It's not relativistic. It doesn't depend on society's opinion. 
It doesn't depend on celebrities' opinion. It doesn't depend on media opinion. It doesn't depend on our own opinion. It simply says the earth was corrupt in God's sight. God had created the earth. It's God's earth. We are his project, so to speak. Therefore, it's only God's opinion of us that counts, not a social commentator or a political commentator or any other commentator. God can do what God wants in God's world. But then it goes on. He saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. But as verse 9 says, Noah walked with God. That phrase is used a lot in the Bible. It implies a continuous action, not just something done once, twice a week. Noah was a righteous man. In fact, this is the first mention of righteousness in the Bible. He was a man of right standing before the Lord. He was blameless. He gave no reason for anyone else to blame him. He walked continuously with God, even though he couldn't see God. As I said, he was so completely different to everyone else that he showed them up. He showed them what they should be. So how had they become so corrupt? That Hebrew word there is a difficult word. It means corruption. To corrupt or decay. It means a steadily downward trend. The problem had begun in Eden. God said to Adam, Don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. God's will was that they remain in a state of innocence, allowing him to make the decisions, the big decisions for them, such as don't eat of the fruit. What happened? Adam chose Eve over God. So now, instead of God's will in the world, we have two wills, God's and Adam's. Then we have Eve, then Cain, then Abel. And suddenly, instead of having one will in the world, we have thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of wills in the world. Each one saying, I will. Each one thinking they know best. Each one living for themselves. But there were still some who chose to honor God. There were still some who had learned from their parents, some who made a decision, I will follow God. Noah's own grandfather was Methuselah. Methuselah, perhaps the longest person mentioned in the Bible, the longest living person in the Bible. His own lifespan overlapped that of Adam's for 230 years. 
Noah's own lifespan overlapped that of Methuselah for 600 years. They knew people who had been there at the beginning. Noah knew Methuselah. Methuselah knew Adam. It was not something strange that happened way off in the past, somewhere in dim history. To many of these people, they had known people who were there. People would have known God for who he was, but they self-destructed by ignoring him and just doing their own thing. The only people left following God were the descendants of Seth. Now parents, if ever there is a good reason to teach your children to walk with God, is this not it? But the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. No wonder, with a comment like that, all their thoughts were evil all the time. No wonder the earth was filled with violence. And no wonder that a just and a holy God was offended. He was hurt. He was grieved. In order to be a just and a holy God, he would have to act against that wickedness. That meant he would have to destroy his own creation, his own creation that had started off good. And this is where most people switch off. Yeah, they say. God is spiteful and vindictive. This is what we think the God should be like. An old man with a carrot and a stick. You do what I want, and you get the carrot. You don't do it, you get the stick. They think God says, if you're not going to play nice, you're not going to play at all. Forgetting it's God's world. It's God's rules. But don't forget, God's justice demands that he put a stop to injustice. His mercy demands that he find and offer a way of escape. As a God who knows, understands, and feels all emotions perfectly and fully, imagine what this would do to a just, a righteous, and a holy God. What would it have to do to him, knowing he would have to put an end to his own creation, a creation who now ignored him? This is not a vindictive God. This is something that had to be done. He didn't want to destroy the whole of mankind. We know that. Because in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, it says, God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God looked around. He saw Noah, one who still walked with him. For Noah's sake, he decided Noah would be the one who would save the world. 
Noah was given directions to build the ark. Ark, for those of you who don't know, is a simple word that means a protective box or a sanctuary. It was not designed to be a sailing boat. It was more of a life boat. And when God gave Noah the instructions, he gave him specifications, for those of you who are interested. It wasn't a blueprint. It wasn't, didn't have fine print in it. He just told him, go and build it, use these materials. He left the details up to Noah. For the purpose of the recording, there's Noah in front of a very small model saying, what's a cubit and which one's a centimeter? So God told Noah what to do. He told him basically how to do it. He told him why he had to do it. He didn't ask Noah to do something he didn't understand. Although if you subscribe to the canopy theory, it's possible that it had never rained before. What God did ask for was obedience. Now trust builds up over time. Small things first and then bigger and bigger. As it has shown that trust can be justified, then we are justified in trusting in bigger things. Picture, if you will, a small child standing on a wall. The father says, jump. He jumps. Why does he do it? Because he knows every other time he's done it, he's been caught. His father is not going to let him down. Every parent plays this game. It's part of growing up. But when that child is stuck up up in a tree and the father says, jump, the child jumps knowing he will be safe because every other time he's jumped, he has been caught. He will be safe. So trust is also based on knowledge of the other person. In Luke chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus told Simon, who was out fishing, who hadn't caught any fish, throw your nets on the other side, go out further a little bit. And Simon Peter turned to him and said, we've worked hard all night, we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, we will let the nets down again. And we know that they pulled in so many that the nets almost broke. In John John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, faith and trust in the Bible are almost the same word. They are basically the same. This is a form of faith. Doing what he wants you to do because he said it. When he asks you to follow a path that you can't really see the end of, faith is following it because you trust that he knows best, even if you don't know why. Faith and trust are built on relationships. Because of this, the opposite of trust is not mistrust, That's active, but indifference. 
apathy. Mankind in Noah's day knew who God was. They probably acknowledged his existence. They just weren't bothered. They didn't care. They were quite happy with their own lives. But Noah was righteous, and so Noah established, God established his covenant with Noah. A covenant is a binding agreement. Because they were in a relationship, Noah trusted that God meant what he said. If he had chosen to ignore God or to reinterpret what God had said, things would have been very different. And for the purpose of the recording, his wife says, Noah, didn't God tell you in so many words that he was about to flood the world? And, to and you had to build an ark? Says Noah, yes, but I thought it was all a metaphor. So, it begins. Noah builds the ark. 120 years. We don't know that he spent the whole 120 years building the ark. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. But he acted on God's word. It was big. It was a huge endeavor. And when the time was right, God brought the animals to Noah. He didn't have to go out running and looking for them. He brought two of every kind of unclean animal, seven of every clean animal to Noah. And then he told Noah, get into the ark. Now, as we close, let's think about this. What went through Noah's mind when he was in the ark? With all the animals and the door closed and nothing going on around him. Did he sit there contemplating the termites and wondering, did I really hear from God? Did he wonder how did things get to this stage? Did he contemplate those who laughed at his preaching and his pleading with them while he built the ark? Did he contemplate those who said to him, but Noah, locking your family up in that big box is tantamount to abuse. We should report you to someone. Did he, like Isaiah, say, Lord, who has believed our message? Or did he say, Lord, I don't understand you, but I trust you? Just like today, in this world today, this world also has caused God hurt and pain. It has also become corrupt and violent. I don't think this world is going to be judged because of those who raise their fists at God. I think it will be judged because of those who stand on other people to get to their goals. I think it will be judged because of those who love doing their own thing more than what God has asked them to do. I think it will be judged because of those who acknowledge God but don't really care. Like Noah waiting for the rains to begin 
will we say, my father, I don't understand you, but I trust you. That is a picture taken in Zimbabwe. There is a history behind that. But that little plaque there says, my father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. If you'd like to know the history of that, I'll tell you afterwards. As we respond, let's ponder that question, what troubles God's heart? And I think the simple answer really is, we do. Um, And God is grieved, not simply because we've not done what he wanted, but because what he wants for us is what's best for us. And as, as Peter said, the good news is not simply that God has to deal with injustice, but in God's mercy, he has created that way back. He's built an ark for us, and we'll be remembering uh, that as we come to share in bread and wine uh, shortly, the work that Jesus did on the cross. Who can save themselves? No one. Only God can rescue us.